Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Welcome to Post Doom. Regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. In this conversation, I've invited Barbara Cecil to co-host with me. If you're not already familiar with Barbara, please do check out my conversation with her. She's amazing. And we interviewed Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen is a legendary death worker and grief walker. In fact, his documentary, Grief Walker, is extraordinary, an hour and ten minutes long. And we've titled this conversation, In a Time of Trouble. One preview. Is misanthropy our version now of, of conscience? My answer is no. There is a way of figuring out how to do this. And it's to put yourself in the middle of something and not at the beginning of something. So in other words, rather than seeing yourself at the beginning of seven subsequent generations, as if you are the kind of moral architect of the world in time to come. You could understand yourself as standing in the midst of 14 generations. The seven generations that are prior to us right now, we are the heirs to all of that. And if you look like I do, a standard white guy, then you realize you're copying to all of the industrial revolution material all of the age of empire building and so on, all of that material that goes back seven generations and more. I am the repository of that stuff. And my obligation is to carry myself as if I'm the consequence unintended or otherwise of the way life has been lived until nowishly. It's only my ability to see myself that way. I think that gives me the capacity to govern myself differently and understand my fundamental responsibility will be to people I'll never meet. And the way I can practice that is to understand that as a global citizen, I, it's not a future tense reality. I have obligations to people I'll never meet and we're both alive at the same time now. The conversation begins. Stephen, if you could say something about your experience in the death trade and the difference between those dying who do and do not acknowledge what's happening and how that relates to these times. Oh boy. I know. Okay. Start with a easy one. <laughs> Start with a lightweight question. <laughs> uh, I didn't know there was such a thing as a death trade. And uh, looking back on it now, I wish there wasn't. By which I mean, I was at the, at the tip of the tower of you know, the, the most high-tech medical environment that North America has ever seen. And um, the, the reliance upon expertise, the slavish reliance upon expertise of all kinds, and the willingness of the general public to forego 
any obligation or any capacity, you know, to participate deeply in the quote practice wisdom that's supposed to guide all that technology made a kind of perfect storm of, um, of um, s strange reliance upon professionals who'd never undergone what you're undergoing. It's a very peculiar arrangement, you know, you, you entrust yourself to people who are frank amateurs at the existential level, if you're the one who's dying and they're the one who's not. And the alternative is to entrust yourself with, to fellow dying people, which, well, that's questionable too. So then, so what's left? And the, the thing that eventually claimed my full attention was the notion that it's, it's that kind of professionalized silo of practice knowledge that is uh, a, an enormous dilemma for uh, citizens because it really neutralizes the obligations and, and the, uh, the role of citizenship in the, in the democratization of wisdom, I would say. So I'm not saying anybody said all this stuff when I was in the business, but I'm telling you that uh, mm -hmm. uh, after a brief but intense sojourn in the, in the thing, I found that amongst the most egregious arrangements and it was architectural. So it was virtually invisible. And I never heard anyone troubled by it. Not then, not since either. So um, what did I do? Well, I failed to comply, which is not much to brag about. I, um, I, I was troubled enough that I began to believe in the trouble instead of trying to seek out yet another range of solutions that would neutralize my disturbance about the whole thing. And of course, this doesn't make me in any way heroic, uh, not then, not now, but what it did do was kind of give me a, a, something like nerve, I guess I would say. And now I'm very much an outlier and I get absolutely no gigs from the business. <laughs> no gigs at all. How has your experience shaped how you now think about people who deny or stay in denial or people who face uh, courageously our global predicament. It's not that apparent to me that there's legions of people who are quote, facing what's coming. I mean, that's a very particular formulation. And uh, I, I would like to sort of reimagine it in the following way. Uh, <clears throat> it was routinely claimed that I was belaboring the obvious when I was in the death trade, when I kept contending with the notion that it wasn't clear to me that people knew that they were going to die, not before they were told, not during the period of treatment and the rest, and not afterwards either. And uh, it obliged me to wonder what knowing you were going to die could possibly do to you, since I rarely saw it. And the conclusion I came to is something like this. About, I don't know, 30 some odd years ago, everybody knew there was enough oil. Now, I would imagine three of us would say, no, that was never true. And I would agree with you, it was never true. But that didn't prevent us from knowing that it was true, if you take my meaning there. And how could you tell that we knew that there was enough oil for everybody forever? The answer is by how we conducted ourselves, particularly our buying habits. 
And that to told you where the knowledge lay and what its content was. So I look in vain for the same trail, the same kind of chemtrail across the existential sky that, that clearly indicates that people know that they're going to die. Not imminently, but at all. And if I take that <laughs> understanding and apply it to the question that you've asked me, I end up with some tragically similar observation. Mm. That there doesn't seem to be much in the daily grind as people let me in on it that suggests that they are, quote, facing what's coming, you see. If anything, I would suggest that most of the strategies are to get on the other side of facing it. Yeah. Yes. That doesn't necessarily mean deny, but make a very temporary um, visit to the way it is in order to find a more livable and quote unquote life positive response. I find that, frankly, tragic on the one side and truant on the other side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A culture that is so deeply traumatized by being caught up in a web of, and, and in a momentum of change that is so relentless, so purposeless, so without recourse, without, um, without, it brooks no challenge and it will leave you behind in a heartbeat if you're not willing to go along with it. All of that struck me as, of course, the question of who's in charge derives from a feeling that, that the governing, the regime is an idea now. It's not a people, it's not a cabal, it's not the rich guys. It's an insane idea that if we just spend more, we'll find a way to spend less. If we just do more, we'll finally be able to do less. If we just take all of the problems that our reliance upon technology has generated and generate more technology to solve the problems, we're gonna be okay. That, that recipe is a kind of ongoing, low-grade, traumatized madness, a kind of non-specific free-floating anxiety that seems to be the tone and maybe it comes down to this i'm sure this is a piece of urban lore but the, the gist of it is that somebody had a visitor from some country in africa visiting him in in a big city in the u.s and the city had a subway so he thought he would introduce the man to the city by bringing him to the subway so they emerged out of the subway in rush hour when people were heading to work and the man glued himself to the wall and was obviously terrorized. Mm -hmm. And when his host said, what's the matter? The man said, what are all these people running from? And the host said, they're not running from anything. They're going to work. And, and the, and the guest said, no, that's not possible. Nobody, nobody moves like this if they're not terrorized and fleeing something. So you wonder which of the two of them understood rush hour for what it was. <laughs> you can't let yourself not be in control. You see, it's the nature of control to be in a thousand ways 
nefariously insinuating itself into everything you see and every way you have of seeing it. Life will introduce you to the <clears throat> unerring possibility that it's not overly concerned about your psychic habits. It's not invested in affirming them. It's not invested in destroying them. It, has, it makes no reference to how we see things. I learned this from the death trade because dying among, you know, in a handful of other things is, um, is a relentless deity which, which will exercise its, its capacities and its obligations to be a deity regardless of our readiness our, our our proneness you know our, our our inclination to entertain it or not and you know the uh, the climate change which is a very neutral way of referring to what's happening i think we we would agree it's too neutral in fact because the sense of urgency about it and the the oncomingness of it is kind of is blunted with the phrase climate change it's it's warming for the most part, and maybe it's maybe that reference you know, could be helpful. So, so the climate warming shows no sign of slowing down or even flatlining. It's increasing. It's increasing as a direct consequence of our un, utter unwillingness to govern ourselves as if it's happening. Well, that's a recipe not a recipe, that's a description of a kind of sociopathic uh, preoccupation with what serves me. And, you know, alas, it seems that we are in a time where we would much rather be defeated by mounting and mounting evidence than we would rather than to be persuaded before the evidence is all in. I mean, how much is enough evidence to cause you to investigate every buying habit that you could possibly engage in a given day and pass all of those decisions through the filter of what's happening. But I don't see it. And the, the climate certainly is a fair, like a seismograph of this unwillingness, at least in our corner of the world, uh, to govern ourselves accordingly. And this is more uh, exercise in self-determination. And as soon as you deify self-determination, you know, be not surprised that until your personal sky begins to crumble and to fall, you, you feel no obligation to, to govern yourself as if the sky in other parts of the world is indeed crumbling and falling, lar in large measure as a consequence of your self-indulgent way of life. And we know that the climate response is behind the wave, so to speak, which is to say that we do not see today the consequences of our behavior today. What we're looking at is the consequences of our behavior over the last, let's say, literally 30 to 40 years. That's what we're looking at right now. This means that demonstrably our children will be the ones who will be obliged to live out the consequences of what's happening while you and I are having this conversation. We will not even live the consequences 
of what we're putting into motion. That's how far away we are from, quote, what's happening. And it seems to me the only, the only, let's say, shift of mind that can allow the briefest episode of sanity into this arrangement is to borrow, if we could, this understanding of uh, so-called the teaching of the seven generations. And uh, it, it enjoys a lot of high-end sort of, sort of uh, kitchen poster uh, prominence today. And the notion is basically to govern yourself, understanding that the consequences seven generations from now will be there seven generations from now. So this is all well and good, but the question is, how do you do that? You just feel bad all the time. Is misanthropy our version now of, of conscience? My answer is no. There is a way of figuring out how to do this. And it's to put yourself in the middle of something and not at the beginning of something. So in other words, rather than seeing yourself at the beginning of seven subsequent generations, as if you are the kind of moral architect of the world in time to come, you could understand yourself as standing in the midst of 14 generations. The seven generations that are prior to us right now we are the heirs to all of that. And if you look like I do, a standard white guy, then you realize you're copying to all of the industrial revolution material, all of the age of empire building and so on, all of that material that goes back seven generations and more. I am the repository of that stuff. And my obligation is to carry myself as if I'm the consequence unintended or otherwise of the way life has been lived until nowishly. It's only my ability to see myself that way, I think that gives me the capacity to govern myself differently and understand my fundamental responsibility will be to people I'll never meet. And the way I can practice that is to understand that as a global citizen, I, it's not a future tense reality. I have obligations to people I'll never meet and we're both alive at the same time. No. Yeah. What are the similarities and differences between coming to a sense of equanimity and gratitude about one's own impending death and the death of this civilization and perhaps even our species? Oh boy. Uh, well, let's work backwards on the last part. I think the death of the species is conjecture at this point. Your personal death ain't. <laughs> There's the first one. So they're not really in the same, let's say, order of likelihood. That's the first thing. Second thing is the death, the, the civilization is, it's, it's suicidal. It's not death. Death is a given, a given consequence of the fact you, that you were lucky enough to draw breath and keep going. But a suicidal way of life could not in any way be understood as, um, as a matter of your good fortune. It's what you did with the good fortune that was bestowed upon you instead, see? And that you couldn't find good enough reason to act in, in the interest of that which you relied upon. So you developed self-reliance instead and acted on that benefit, uh, uh, excuse me, on that merit instead. Um, but endings though, Endings, limits, frailties. That kind of holy trinity of 
aging or, or yeah, of impermanence, if you will. These things are enormously important practices. Everyone's death before your own, that's where you get a chance to get the hang of things. Every, you know, I never had anybody walk into my office all the years I had an office and say to me, well, my wife still loves me. Uh, the kids are still talking to me. Uh, my health's pretty good. The job's working out well. I thought I'd come and talk about my life. It never happened. So things working out is never a prompt to wonder about anything. And if things go bad enough, the prompt is similarly gone without a trace. So what does it take? What does it take? Maybe it's this. Before your own endings and frailties set in for the duration, you get an opportunity to see what it looks like. And there is some real mercy in that because you're not obliged to come to these things as a rookie or as an amateur. You're obliged to come to these things as an informed observer who beginning to recognize his or her own fortunes in the declining fortunes of others. If that constitutes a kind of spirit practice that contributes to our willingness to see down a kind of living arrangement that is properly finding its end, then I'm all for it. I, I'm not persuaded that that's the way it'll go because people are fighting off, you know, coming to their own personal limits. So apparently being limited is for suckers now, you see. It, it was an act of real devotion in the death trade to bear faithful witness to what was happening when the recognition was that what was happening was what was going to happen, come what may. I'm not sure that it's wise to draw a kind of moral and aesthetic parallel between the givenness of the death at the end of one's life of an individual person and the kind of maniacally um, consumptive way of life that we've been alluding to off and on, I'm not sure that they're the same order of existence, really. Mm. So with that in mind, you could say that, that being willing to see the frailties and, and limits and endings that, that surround us could prepare us not to endure the civilization's ending, but rather to prompt it towards that ending since it would not appear to know how to end on its own. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a kind of midwifery function, mysteriously. Yeah, yeah. That, that the, the greater act is not sabotage. The greater act is seeing down what you have tried for so long to restore and to love. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Thank you. This is one of the heart questions of this, this series. Most of us who were born in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, just assumed perpetual progress uh, or, you know, whatever. And we're heirs to this tradition. And then that shifted for us, sometimes gradually, sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes uh, very suddenly. And how did that shift happen for you? What would then a little bit of your story in terms of how you went from sort of normal American consciousness to the, the kind of place that you are and you teach so profoundly now? Well, I don't have a normal American consciousness because I'm a Canadian. So there's the first oh, thing. Okay, good, thanks. 
Yeah. I know it's easy for you guys to forget that there's, there's lots of differences here. But, yeah. Um, well, you know, anyone who speaks with great authority <laughs> about the comings and goings of one's own life is a fool in the making, you know, and I'm not sure it, it even credits anything I could come up with to imagine that I can, that I have an overview of what you're asking me about. I have a kind of episodic disturbance from time to time that I can recollect. That's as close to authority as I can manage. So, so here's one. Okay. So I, <laughs> and I'm not proud of this and I don't recommend it as a strategy for realization of any kind. But I, I tried to save money in my 20s, the money I didn't have, even into my 30s by not going to the dentist. So you know what that means for me now. I'm spending a lot of money at the dentist. <laughs> okay, so in the, you're wondering at this point, wow, where's this story going? And it's a true story, though. So I'm in the dentist's office for the first time in many years, and I'm terrified. And I have a kind of Freudian terror about all of that. <laughs> and as I'm waiting for my time in hell, I'm leafing through the magazine stack, which is a fascinating study. A magazine pile in a dentist's office is an amazing encounter. Because, because if you're a kind of cultural archaeologist, and you start to look at these things, many of them are dated, right? So you're getting a, a remarkable kind of cross-section, like a, almost a geological cross-section of through the advertising mainly but also what ends up on the front page, et cetera. Anyway, this is the way I'm built. So I'm easy, to, I'm easy to entertain from that point of view. So I'm flipping through there and here don't I find old copies in the National Geographic, probably from the 50s maybe. <laughs> and uh, so I start leafing through these things and National Geographic for all of its merits has for the longest time been a remarkably fascistic uh, organ of disseminating American exceptionalism. Excuse me, but there's no question that that's the case. And um, so I'm looking through this stuff and it hits me because there's another discovery of another lost civilization in the jungle somewhere. And it's the standard story. You know, they find this, it's all a mystery and, and the, the mystery is easily answered. It goes like this. The mystery is what happened to these people? And the writers of the thing never said, you know, these natives we hired to help us dig this place out. That's what happened to them. They're right there. But nobody ever says that, of course. So, um, so what happened to them? And then they answer their own question. Although more research is necessary, the, very, the great likelihood is overpopulation combined with environmental degradation. You know, and we're hearing this now. We're going, uh-oh. <laughs> National Geographic, if it lasts longer than us, you're going to write about us the same way. However, I'm thinking to myself, you hear the overarching story that, that they insinuate upon every discovery they make. It's catastrophe that ends successful human events. That's the, that's the moral order that they're counting on. So I sat there and, and you know, waiting for my purgatorial event. And I suddenly, <laughs> suddenly hit me. What if this as an explanatory tool is more of the same, not something neutral, not something helpful, but more of the spell. Yeah. So let me propose to you what I came up with in response while I waited for my time in the chair. It hit me that the end of that place 
could very conceivably be understood as the willingness of overly successful people to be informed by the consequences of their, quote, relative success, and to have their understanding of what it means to be human regulated by the unwitting, unintended consequences they visited upon their home place. I mean, bear in mind, these are places and times where people understood places to be alive. They understood these places to be their psychic, spiritual, ontological homes. They understood them to be deified places. So these are their gods. This counts for something in the ensuing story. So, I mean, we could take up the whole thing. I'll see if I can say it very quickly. So, so the notion is this. As the people become increasingly capable of making a go of it in this place, the direct consequence is more people. There's other things too, but more people is an inevitable consequence of us figuring stuff out. So, so there's, the longer that people begin to reproduce at that level, the shorter the memory becomes of a time when it wasn't like this, when there wasn't so many of us, when our place in the order of things was neither guaranteed nor supreme. And I'm imagining a time like that, where it's the oldest people in their midst who find a way to say to the guys in charge and the, you know, the strong people and so on, the leaders, do you know, even though it's subtle right now, our memory tells us that this place has not always looked as it does, as it's beginning to look now. And by virtue of us being successful at feeding ourselves and our material culture production and so on, we can see already some subtle diminishment of that which has been sustaining us. And so we're asking everybody to, to reimagine what loving this place could look like now. There was a time when loving this place meant drawing our sustenance from it. Could it be then that if we're really at home in this place and if we really love it, and if this is really our origin, that we write a new love letter to this place, which is a letter of farewell, and that our willingness to love it this time is going to be different because it's taking into consideration the consequence of our former love, our old way of loving. It's not less loving, it's differently articulated because the circumstances are different. And the understanding of love has to shift in order for it to remain loving. And its failure to do so becomes something more self-sustaining um, and, and the rest. So I imagined a time when at least some cultures decided to stop being themselves, stop being so successful, divide up into clan groups and dissipate and basically quote unquote disappear from the historical record. Far from being catastrophic, this was the willingness for catastrophe as a possibility to inform how they would proceed. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, I like and that, it. And that realization in the dentist's office kind of gave me an understanding that wasn't pre on this matters, that wasn't predicated on grievance or misanthropy or guilt or shame or da 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 all of that, not that it's not there, but instead it gave me an understanding of this matter that if it were approached from an understanding of love, um, conscience, 
um, the willingness to be a human instead of being ashamed for being one, and the rearticulation of what deep running humanity could possibly look like in a time of trouble. It seemed to me that that was a repertoire that could be immediately useful, not as a solution, but, to, but as, a, as a way of beginning to cultivate a, let's call it a, an unsought realization that places us squarely at the level of responsibility and minorly at the level of, we might be able to do something about ourselves, not for ourselves, about ourselves. My, my, it's more like I, I'd like to know what you think of this, Stephen. I, my sense of things reading history, especially Teddy Goldsmith has been Edward Goldsmith, the publisher and the editor of The Ecologist magazine for close to 40 years. And he, he wrote a book called The Way, An Ecological Worldview. Um, and he's probably done more certainly for me in helping me distinguish unsustainable, self-destructive cultures, uh, human-centered cultures from those that can live for long periods of time without defiling and degrading primary reality. And the, my simple way of thinking about it is that sustainable cultures are those that don't foul their own nest um, measure success because it seems like our brains are, are going to have some goal. We're goal-seeking animals. So we're going to have some goal that we work toward, uh, which is something to be achieved or, you know, whatever. And if our goal or if our notions of success are human-centered, then we self if our goals are life-centered so that we measure success or progress um, by how well the soil is doing decade by decade, how well the forests are doing decade by decade, how are other species doing decade by decade, and perhaps different clans attend to different aspects, that seems to me to be the heart of uh, self-destructive cultures versus sustainable cultures. And we're so far from that, that if humanity survives this bottleneck, this climate catastrophe and peak oil and soil and just all the con converging problems, predicaments really. Um, our only hope, it seems to me, is coming back to life-centered measures of well-being, of progress. So I wanted to hear what you think about that. Okay, um, I myself would not distinguish um, life-centered from human-centered. And the reason for that is that if we exempt ourselves from, from understanding ourselves as a life-imbued thing, and we only imagine that, that life, real life, authentic life, unquestionably sustaining life is kind of out there in the green stuff, and we are, it's, uh, it's horror show waiting to happen. Well, we, we end up with more of the same. So my counter suggestion would run something like this, rather than life-centered versus human-centered, you might simply inquire after the kind of moral and sort of mythic poetic architecture by which a given people govern themselves, where do they place humanity in the story? not whether they exempt themselves from it, which would be a grim, grim scenario, which we're on the verge of trying to do, I think, in the West at least, but simply ask yourself, not whether humans belong in there, but where is their proper belonging? Mm -hmm. and, and what you often find in cultures that we 
have a hard time finding and recognizing anymore, is that humans are granted a place of deep reliance or dependence as a dependent, not as a co-conspirator, mm -hmm. not as in any way central to the operation, not even as mandatory, simply as heavily reliant. Mm -hmm. I wrote about this in the Die Wise uh, towards the, in the latter third of it. And, and a lot of people said to me, why, why are you writing about sustainability and all that kind of stuff in a book about dying? I said, well, you'd only think that doesn't fit if you thought it was a book about how to not die while you're dying. So, so the, the thing I was able to come up with on short notice went something like this. We are the most dependent uh, life form that I think I know about. There could be others, but I can't imagine anybody's more reliant upon every other thing than we are. And I just wonder whether the reliance is mutual. Is it, is it uh, recognizably uh, go back and forth? And the answer is indisputably not. There's virtually no life form on the planet that relies primarily or even secondarily upon our presence on the scene for its sustainability or its health. It's amazing. We, on the other hand, require the presence of virtually everything that's out there just to eke out, you know, our day to day. Mm -hmm. So where does that place us in the order of things? Properly, it places us not quite on Pluto, you know, but you could say heavily reliant mm -hmm. should have a kind of mythic, moral, poetic, religious consequence if we're willing to see ourselves properly this way. If we're the most reliant and the least needed, then you could say, that our obligation to what sustains us runs more deeply, more implacably than it runs in any other life form. Yes. Because we're so much the beneficiary and so little the benefactor of the gig, right? That's the way I'd, I'd imagine it. That's the kind of, how should I put it? That's the kind of mythic uh, and moral universe I would like to have been able to be born into. Wow. I think you've alluded to quite a, a call to those who are willing to step into an elder position to love this place and be able to speak to people um, who have been successful in traditional terms. You followed that, I believe, with saying something about a farewell letter. And I just wondered if we could go back to that for a second about the farewell letter and there might i don't know if there's something more you'd want to say about it but it it uh, touched something in me as yeah. you spoke well, i'm glad yeah. it did it touched something in me every time i say it too yeah well it's actually the phrase if i didn't say it the first time i'll say it now what i mean by it is a love letter of farewell not oh. a farewell letter a love letter of farewell Farewell means you are wishing goodness upon that which you are leaving. You're not asking for good fortune as you depart. Right. And in fact, you could go further and, and imagine that your real good fortune is you having come to your collective senses and deciding to depart. This is not you cutting off your nose to spite your face. This is your beauty finally appearing. Mm 
you could say. Mm. So um, the word I would use that I think both detonates and, and, and draws this understanding into something that could be observable is our word in English, the verb to belong, which I think one of you used in, in a question recently that you asked me. So we know how we tend to try to use it today. We mean it to be included in, to be a part of, and there's no synonym really for belong, the kind of that order that gives you a sense of primary purpose and, and station in life, you could say. All of this derives from finding a place and the people to whom you belong. But if we investigate the word, we find out that our experience of belonging has nothing to do with what the word is actually granting us as an understanding. So here we go. This is an old English word, and because it is, we can track it differently than we would Latin or Greek. So we have the be prefix, which in old English was a prefix. It was never a standalone word. That's a fairly recent evolution in the syntax of our language. So you'd never be able to talk about being, for example, because there's only relational meaning to that word. But the way we use it today, there's a kind of essentialist understanding which isolates the particular being <laughs> from everything else that contributes to its sustenance and its presence and so on. You end up with this, this horrific and deeply alone sense of the primacy of existence, you know. Okay, so the BE prefix has the function in Old English simply of it intensifying what follows in the rest of the word. So you could say it doesn't mean a lot of, but it means something closer to just when you thought the whole thing was here, there's more. There's a different kind of more that doesn't add to it. It deepens it instead. And then we have the root word, a, a verb that I rarely, if ever, hear anyone use, the verb to long. And people who don't, who don't practice longing often mistake it for desire, as if it's more or less the same thing. If you look up your standard dictionary, it'll probably use desire as a kind of vague synonym for it. But here's the difference. You know, desire, and you know, think of it way beyond the narrow sexual connotation. Desire has the remarkable capacity to fool itself into thinking that it's trying to find a way to stop. I'm just looking for the object of my desire. And as soon as I do, magic, no more desire. Just, just I don't know what the, the end of desire looks like. Never been there myself. But anyway, that's the kind of phantom opera of the thing. Get on the other side of desire so you can finally stop desiring. Well, you know what happens every time you find the object of your desire. Your desire has a remarkable capacity to revive in a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of years, whatever it takes. But it's not gone at all. It's heavily addicted to the next new thing. And here it comes again. It never tried to stop. Longing, on the other hand, has no such MO. The amazing thing about longing is, it is its own reward. It doesn't, it doesn't seek out an object to long after and therefore begin to appear in our midst. You can, for example, 
long to be alive as you live. Which on the surface of it sounds a little crazy. I mean, you're alive. Why would you long to be alive at the same time? And you know what the answer is? Well, you know how humans are. We can be alive, but not very. We can still have all the vital signs cooking around and everything's still in good working order, but some aspect of us is deeply distracted from the understanding that this is as good as it gets, man, and that there's nothing to wait for. And you've already got the mercy of the ages, and it's called knowing you're still alive, why you can still act on it, and so forth. So that's the mystery of longing is it's not trying to get on the other side of itself to turn into something more user-friendly. Longing mysteriously is amongst the most user-friendly frames of mind that a human being is capable of. So reassemble the word. And what is belonging now? The answer is, it's a kind of intensification of longing that runs so deep and is so impossible to replace by anything else that it gives you a sense of almost involuntary gratitude mm -hmm. just because you're still here. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to get better and you don't have to have more. It's miraculously deeply and properly enough. And of course, these moments don't last very long and desire says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're off to that stuff. But so anyway, I guess the point I'm making here is to you know, follow up the previous idea about the love letter and so on, is that you could reimagine belonging to a place as living a life in such a way that the place lasts longer than you, lasts longer than your way of life, lasts longer than your people does. And as long as it lasts, then your way of life becomes commendable, as long as the place lasts. But if the place doesn't survive your way of life, your way of life is indefensible and probably should not be called a way of life, hmm. but a means of extraction or kind of psychic fracking instead. Psychic <laughs> fracking, I love it. Yeah. Wow, I yeah. loved everything you just shared. Yeah, I'll just summarize myself, you know, for, because it's not that easy to do. Um, the gist of it would be something like this. I don't know if you get the feeling tone from what I'm saying, but it's not joyous in the obvious sense of the word. I was talking about things that are remarkably soul stirring, yes. but they're not reassuring. There's a different function there and it's the animating force, frankly, is grief. That's what it is. It's why is it so friggin' hard when it can be said in a sentence or two? What is it about daily life that makes living seems so impossible kind of thing. Not what's wrong with us, but how has it come to pass that the capacity to long has become something that your life coach is trying to train you away from? As if it's a, as if it's a source of your deep dissatisfaction with yourself. It is, that's the point. If you're dissatisfied with yourself, you're starting to get the hang of things, see? because the primacy of your personal happiness, you've already experimented with that shit. It's enough already with being all you can be, right? The world's not big enough for all of us being all we could be. How about imagining our children being entitled to much less than we had when we were their age? Yeah. 
I'm just noticing our time, Stephen, and I, I'm wondering if there's something to say about our children, how to join them and be of deep partners in reestablishing some new ground here. So many of them are angry and feeling the paucity of what's been left behind for them. And uh, seems that I'd like to just maybe end with that part of the eldership theme. Yeah, I'll try. Um, I got a few kind of titular grandchildren wandering around the farm now, which is to say that they're not my biochemical spawn, but I've been claimed by their families and so on. And it's quite an honor, but it's a kind of diabolical honor in this time. Because my obligation, it seems to me now, is to proceed as if, if not them, then someone of their generation should I still be alive when they're in their 20s or early 30s, is going to come to me with two questions. And I hope they do and they should, and they better. And the first question goes like this, when you were my age, did you know what was happening? And I'll tell you, I'm fairly sure that anybody who asks this question in 30 or 40 years from now is going to hope that the answer is no. That's what they're relying upon more than anything else. It's a very strange formulation. You're asking a question, did you know? And you're not very secretly hoping that the older person you're asking didn't know. Why? Because it's the only answer you can live with. Why? Because if they did know and things went the way they went, it means that the older people you're asking didn't do anything or didn't do enough based on what they knew and the current regime is proof positive that they didn't and that's an unbearable thought to look somebody in the eye and to realize their dereliction of duty it must be very much as it would have been in the generation after the second war in germany when you're asking did you know what did you do when everybody at the nuremberg trials is defending themselves by saying they didn't know they only knew this much that's and you know how likely is that? And so on. I mean, because it makes you feel you're, you're from literally disreputable genetic material. I mean, the shame of it is beyond describing, I would imagine. So, so did you know what was happening when you were my age? And I think the only authentic answer has to include the following. Even though the technology was rather prosaic in my time, still, the truth is, that anybody who did want to know what was happening could have known. But it, it is very clear that not everybody wanted to know. And so not everybody did. And that's what you have to find a way to understand, that not everyone did want to know. So not everybody did know. And as far as I can tell, things don't seem to have changed so enormously. And the second question, really, no matter how you answer the first one, is forthcoming and it goes like this. So what did you do? And if we do not live our lives as if these questions are coming up the driveway in the form of a younger person, when that moment does come, if you have any shred of self-respect before the question are, are asked, you'll have none after they're asked or worse. Yeah? 
So it's, it's, so it's enlightened self-interest I'm pleading for here, among other things. Here's the other thing, though. You know, things have changed in, in palpable ways so fiercely since I was 10 or 5 or 12 years old that I think it's reasonable for anyone of my age to look the camera squarely in the eye and say, I'm not sure that I have any capacity to quote, join with anyone one third my age at this juncture and here's why. Because I don't think I have the capacity even imaginatively to occupy any chair similar to the one that people in their 20s currently occupy as they look towards the quote unquote near future. When I was that age, I can tell you that the sense of possibility was palpable, that if you just fill in the blank, you could fill in the blank. Not only a matter as, you know, as a matter of personal fulfillment, but you had a sense that, that large things could be taken on. Let's just put it this way. I don't believe there's even a shred of that understanding available to people in their 20s. And their sense of betrayal by a generation who sought principally self-expression, self-healing, you know, self-understanding, self-aggrandizement is unspeakable. Okay. So then it seems to be the moral responsibility of people my age to see if they can shift their chair enough to stop trying to quote understand young people or see young people for what they are and how they feel about things and so on and shift their gaze by some degree to see whether or not they can bear to see what young people are seeing and i'm not using that formulation to arbitrary elevate the the kind of allegations of wisdom of young people because i don't think that's there but i am saying they are on the receiving end of a deeply blemished operation. And the blemish occurred on the watch of the people my age and older. That's a demographic fact and it's indisputable. And so the moral arrangement of our time has to include the willingness of older people to fess up and I can tell you, having been on the road with come of age for more than a year now, that the general feeling amongst older people, the general willingness to see themselves as somewhat indicted by the things they themselves disapprove of, is so menial and so minimal that it frankly shames me. And I'm not persuaded that I have an enduring obligation to continue to engage people of my generation and older in these matters when their reactivity is so self-serving, so defensive, and so unwilling to know things for what they are. That's a terrible thing to report, and I know you didn't want to end on that, but you know, realistically speaking, that's the other half of how are we going to form some kind of, I don't know, a kind of heart-level affiliation with the people, young people that we have not served well as we tried to be all we could be. My answer is, if you do not begin with the poverties that are the current order, 
then your solutions just carry the germ of what generated the poverty in the first place. And that's my plea. And so far, there's not that many takers. Yeah. 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 Wow, that's great. Thank you. Okay. Stephen, thank you. Thank you very much. That's a great place to leave it and to ponder um, in my heart. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation, too. This has been a post-Doom conversation. For more audios and videos of post-Doom conversations and other resources along these lines, go to postdoom.com.